1 Corinthians 15, and on page 1158. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must, be, must, must, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be starting from verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of, the G of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh 
is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What is life all about? That's our questions for today. As you think about it, what is your life for? What do you want for this one life you've been given? Very simply, very practically, what are you living for? And we all live, don't we, for what we think will make us happy. But is that right? Is that what we should be living for? Yes, absolutely. Of course, the Apostle Paul would agree with that completely. But that does raise the next question. Where is this happiness, this joy for which we were made to be found? So again, we are asking, what should I be living for? Last week, we began a new series in this letter to the Philippians. In the opening verses, we heard from a very happy-sounding Apostle Paul, which was a bit surprising because he was writing from prison, although he didn't dwell on that at all, really. He was much more interested in thanking God for this partnership, gospel partnership he had with the Philippians. They were praying for each other. They would abound more and more in love. And there was a key sentence in that passage, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul said, look with me, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So why were these Philippians Christians? Well, one answer you could give to that is they'd heard and believed the gospel message about Jesus, and that is true. But this verse is reminding them and us that that was the outward mark of God's work in them. God had started them off, as Christians, and Paul knew, therefore, God would finish his work in them, keep them in those Christian lives until the day of Christ's glorious return. But that means the question now is, for those Philippians, what should those lives look like between starting as a Christian and that day when they will see Christ? Which is the same question, of course, for us. What should our lives look like between whenever it was we came to know Christ and this day when we too will stand before him in glory. And in these verses, Paul's going to help us with that. We'll hear Paul speak of himself. He's sharing his news. You might expect that in a letter. But of course, much more than that, Paul is presenting a model, an example, a pattern for those Philippians and for us of what the Christian life should look like what it is we are to live for. And we'll hear, Paul will give us three aims in life. The first, live for gospel advance. Live for gospel advance. So look at what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I want you to know the injustice of it all, how badly I've been treated, the shocking state of Roman jails, and there's this despicable behavior of other Christians. They make life awful for me. He doesn't actually say those things. I hope you were looking down. He could say all those things. They were true. 
kind of things possibly we might want to get off our chest. What Paul actually says, for real, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You'll know what it's like. People send their family newsletter, say at Christmas time, and of course, what they talk about will give you an indication of what is important to them. Maybe the achievements they've had or the experiences they've enjoyed and so on. And of course, if Paul was motivated by those things, it would sound like I pretended to read it in the first instance. But instead, Paul writes differently. He is gripped by something different. His view is shaped by something else, which is gospel advance. This gospel message, the momentous news about Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, which brings forgiveness and life with God forever. This gripped Paul. He was convinced this was for everyone. They needed to hear it. And that really shaped how he considered everything. But we might then have a question, well, if that's what Paul was so concerned about, well, surely that would happen if he was still out and about as a missionary, taking the message in various settings. How can he say that languishing in a prison cell advanced the gospel? Well, let's find out. Verse 13, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, the imperial guard was thousands strong. So what's going on? Well, Paul's prison experience would have been to have been watched constantly, quite possibly even chained to the guard on duty. So not a lot of me time for Paul, to be honest. And he doesn't make any mention of his lack of personal space. This would be agony for most of us. But no, for Paul, this is amazing. He has a captive audience Literally, a guard had to sit next to him and stay there for the whole shift. And then, well, off he went and they gave him another one in his place. This was amazing. Paul couldn't have planned this missionary outreach better himself. And so he's delighted. But it's worth saying it's not just the opportunity Paul had. It was also about taking it. Because Paul says it had become known throughout the whole imperial guard that his imprisonment was for Christ. Not just that he was an impressive prisoner, that he seemed nice, that he looked as if he was coping. No, it was for Christ. Well, how did the whole imperial guard come to know that? There's only one possible way. Paul must have spoke. And he used that opportunity to speak, not to complain or to moan, but he was about Christ. Amazing. And so Paul, obviously, through doing this, had made such an impression on the guards. He couldn't have had 9,000 next to him in a row. But those that did hear him obviously went back to the mess or wherever the soldiers hang out and say, you'll never guess what that soldier is like and what he told me. They all heard about Christ. And so much so, it wasn't just them. Verse 13, it spread further to all the rest, whoever they are. But Paul is thrilled. From his cell, the gospel is advancing to the soldiers and then beyond. And it's not just them. It turns out that it wasn't just unbelievers being affected, verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, 
are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, Christians know they should, of course, speak up this gospel message, but they, we, fear, whatever it is, loss of reputation, persecution. And yet one thing that can embolden us is when we see another Christian that we know going through that opposition and persecution. For some reason, it sharpens the matter up. We realize, well, what they're going through is right, actually. The gospel does matter. It does need to be spoken. It is more important than my comfort and my security. And Paul could see that happening. People were hearing about his trials and they were speaking up. And so again, the gospel is advancing. More people again are hearing about Jesus because of what Paul was going through. So Paul the prisoner is thrilled. So how then does this apply to us? We're not in prison. But maybe, again, our life situation at the moment is not how we would have chosen it to be. Maybe we are having to spend time with, day by day, we'd actually rather not be with. Well, think of Paul. What would he ask us? Why is it, do you think, the Lord might have put us wherever we are? What would he have us do if we were living for gospel advance? Well, Paul's situation wasn't quite as straightforward as these ongoing gospel opportunities. There was more. Verse 15, he tells us, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, what we're about to read almost sounds unbelievable, and yet... Don't we know how this is the reality of Christian life, even amongst Christians? Christians are saved, but we are still sinners. And it's awful. Envy, rivalry, rife, it all still goes on. And it seems to be happening here. We don't know exactly what was happening, but it seems there were some Christians, they were true Christians, but somehow found delight in Paul's predicament. Maybe as those on the outside preached the gospel, they couldn't help just casually observe, oh, we just don't know what happened to Paul. I mean, look at us, we're preaching the gospel, we're not in jail, I don't know what he said that meant he ended up there, and foolish really, wasn't it? Think of all the opportunities he'd had if only he was outside of prison. Maybe they cast aspersions on Paul's strategy, his methods, his character. And in this, they even wanted Paul to maybe hear about it and to feel bad about the whole thing, to be afflicted in his imprisonment, to go and over on him, even to add to his anguish as if it wasn't bad enough. Well, from our personal experience, surely we'd think Paul would resent such awful behavior from fellow believers. And yet, verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So notice, Paul refuses to take great offense at how he's been treated. He will not harbor a grudge, because for him, the important thing is not his feelings. Paul's passion was for people to hear of Christ, and even if that meant that Christians who should have been backing him 
were causing trouble, but as they did that, preaching the gospel, well, again, he was thrilled. That's what mattered. Gospel advance. Just before we go on, did you notice the emphasis all through these verses on proclamation, on speaking? We notice in verse 13, Paul must have been speaking about Christ with his guards. Verse 14, he speaks of other believers speaking the word. Verse 15, preaching Christ. Verse 17, proclaiming Christ. Verse 18, proclaiming Christ. And of course, this emphasis makes sense because of what the gospel is. The gospel is a declaration, a message, momentous news. It can't be communicated simply by my lifestyle, even by a lifestyle like Paul's. It needs to be shared in words. Cannot stay silent. That's why Paul was delighted when that gospel was declared, whether by him or by his friends or even by his opponents, because Paul was living for gospel advance. What are we to live for? Second name, live for Christ. Paul keeps speaking about his experience in verse 19. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Did you get that message at 3 p.m. today? There's a life-threatening emergency nearby. Well, that's maybe the tone here. Paul is in danger. But when you first heard him here speak of deliverance, I wonder what you thought of. Was he speaking of not being executed, maybe, or getting out of jail? But we read on, and that shows us what the issue is. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Will Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. When it comes to speaking of Christ, the temptation is, we all know this, to be ashamed, to hold back. And look at that, verse 20, it seems, even the great apostle Paul knew this temptation. And therefore, Paul knew the danger that he is so concerned about would be to give in to that temptation not to speak up, to be ashamed. But he knows that with the Spirit's help, God's help, with the prayers of the Philippians in their partnership with him, he is confident. Come what may, he will be delivered. That is delivered from being ashamed, delivered from lacking courage. He'll be saved from those things, that he would remain faithful to Christ, whatever lies in store. It really is a different way of thinking about what the danger of our future might be. That's, if you like, negatively. What positively, then, is his aim? Avoid those things, but positively, he says, end of that verse, that he wants Christ to be honoured in his body. So positively honoured, made much of. He wants, if you like, his life, all that he is, to be something that makes much of Jesus. Because if he were ashamed, that would be to say that Christ isn't worthy of being made much of. So positively, that is what he wants to do. Well, today has seen the London Marathon. I went down to watch. It's about mile 24, which means nearly there, only a couple of miles to go. And it was striking. Some of the runners at that point, if you like, had that look on their face. You could see their body was crying out for them just to quit 
Or if not to quit, at least just slow down a little bit. Take a breather. But you could just see it on their face. I have no doubt they would have finished because they were looking ahead. They were pushing on. It was as if they were telling themselves, there is no way I am going to stop now. Eager expectation for that finish line ahead. And in this verse, verse 20, Paul is thinking about the life ambition. So what is it? The life ambition, if you're going to sum it up, is it the career success? Is it the financial security for you or for your dependents? Is it to have seen the world, to experienced its delights? Well, here is Paul. He's considering the rest of his life, however long or short it may be. And his concern is, how can I, with the rest of this life I've been given, honor Christ? How can I make much of him? How can I show to the world his great value and worth? And Paul says, end of verse 20, he's going to do this, whether by life or by death. Bill Shank, who was a legendary Liverpool manager, football club in the last century, and he once said very famously, some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I am very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you it is much, much more important than that. And I know some here think football matters very little indeed, whereas others might just have a hint of a suggestion that they get what Shankly was saying. And yet, of course, everybody knows in the end, bottom line is to say, well, to enjoy football, you do need to be alive. Life and death is the bottom line. What could be more important than that? Well, Paul tells us, and here he's not just coining a clever phrase, he's actually serious and means it. We might even say he's deadly serious. There is something more than clinging on to life. He says, whether by life or by death, we are to honor Christ. That's the bottom line, honor Christ. But we might say, what does he mean by these alternatives, by life or by death? Verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Again, happy Paul. It's a win-win situation. Can you believe it? You can't lose. Life, you win. You get to honor Christ. Death, you win. You get to be with Christ. What a great choice. But if he had to choose, which would Paul go for? Well, his purely personal preference, you might say, well, that's a no-brainer. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. I wonder if you've ever been separated from someone that you're close to. Maybe they're in another country or on another continent. Maybe for days, weeks, even months on end, you don't see them. Yes, you can speak to them, on the phone, you can even see them on a screen, but it's just not the same. You long to be with them in their presence. Well, Paul already knows Christ. It is a genuine, meaningful relationship already. And yet he knows on death, the believer gets to go to be with Christ, to be in his immediate presence forever. And of course that is better, far better. 
And notice, this desire of Paul is not to do with his current life circumstances. It's not about the prison or the hardships or the suffering or wanting relief from those things. Were instead Paul on board the cruise ship in the Med, sipping his pina colada, enjoying the evening sunset, he would still say exactly the same. Because whether on the ship's deck, if you like, or on the prison cell, Christ would not be there in the sense Paul is anticipating. So to depart and to be with Christ, far better. So what are we to live for? We are to live for gospel advance. We are to live for Christ. Third, live for others. Well, imagine Paul waking up one morning in his cell. Ah, no, he thinks to himself. We wonder, what's the problem? Turns out it's not the chains. It's not the guard. It's not the whole tedium, the restrictions, the painful day ahead. Oh, no, says Paul. I'm still alive. Not to say that Paul has a death wish, but we've seen he'd rather be with Christ. But here he is, he's woken up, he finds himself still alive in this world. Obviously, God doesn't yet want to call him home, as they say. But Paul still remembers, but it is a win-win situation. Now, he gets to live for Christ. What does that mean, to live for Christ in practice? Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So to live for Christ is wonderful, but it's not about the easy life. There's no early retirement on offer. Far from it. Paul says it's labor, this wonderful life for Christ. It's effort in all of life, for all of life. But what kind of labor? Verse 24 But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Albert Einstein once said, if you want to live a happy life, tie it not to people. For Paul, the happy life is all about people. One person in particular, above all, Christ. Paul couldn't wait to be with him. But not only that, for as long as Paul keeps breathing and blood pumps around his body, his desire is all to do with other Christians and helping them. What would the world make of this ambition I guess it might just about cope with it if what we're talking about was meeting the practical needs of oppressed Christians somewhere, which of course is a valuable thing to do. But Paul's focus is helping other Christians to get to know Jesus better, as he puts it here, for their progress and joy in the faith. That is what Paul lives for. So maybe that day he finds himself awake, alive again in the cell. So he thinks, okay, today I'll think hard about that letter I'm writing to those Christians to help them in their Christian walk. And let's say he thinks maybe he will get out of prison at some point. But what's he looking forward to? Not so much a comfortable bed or 
independence, all these places he'll get to go, the better food to eat. Much more than that, he's thinking, I'll get to go be those Philippians again to help them in their walk with Christ. So what would an attitude like that look like for us? Again, we're not in prison. So let's just think of maybe the work day. It's a slog. There's hassles, there's difficulties, all the rest of it. You're looking forward to walking out of that office door or logging off the work account. But what then? Fun? Sofa? Netflix? Or is it that you want to get to that church small group for the sake of helping the others who will be there? Or you are wanting to meet up with that fellow struggling Christian to help them just again to look to Christ and all that he gives. Or maybe you will spend a few hours preparing that Bible study, knowing that as God speaks through his word, that is what will help others. To live is Christ, which is to work for the joy and progress of others in the faith. What is it you are living for? Let's take stock of what we've seen. I wonder, what do you make of this example that Paul sets before us? I mean, obviously, it's immensely challenging. Maybe we're just not sure if we can do this. Maybe there are moments, moments at least, that we're not really sure we want to do this. And if we're thinking that, well, the world around us is not going to help a world that lives for and pushes on us comfort and success and wealth and personal ambition, the world way, world's way. Well, in such a world, why would you live for gospel advance to share this message? It not only goes against all the world stands for, it will bring opposition and rejection. Why would you do that? And then to live for the sake of, well, not me, but of other Christians and their progress and joy in the faith. Why do that? What a waste of time and talents and opportunities. Hey, we're in London. There's so much else to do. Pointless to do that. And don't we feel the force of all this? And all that the world pushes on us would be true unless Christ our three aims here in life are only, of course, ultimately really just one, the middle one, to live for Christ. Is it worth it? Is Christ alive? Is he really the glorious king from God that it is a delight to serve? Is it really true that the love of Christ came into the world to meet our most desperate and urgent need? at such very great cost to himself. If Christ, then this simply makes sense. Of course, then, life should be all about Christ. Of course, our future is to want to go to be with him. Of course, life now is about making much of him and helping others to do the same and sharing him with those who don't yet realize how wonderful Christ is. Now, I know some here aren't Christians. Very welcome to have you with us. And maybe as you've heard this, you have thought, this is frankly ridiculous.
ridiculous. And I can understand why you'd think that. But I hope you can begin to see whether it's true or not must depend on this Christ. So I would exhort you, encourage you, plead with you, consider Christ, take a gospel account, read it, but ask for yourselves, this Christ person, is he worthy of a life like this for me? And then what about us who are Christians? Now remember the the Philippians, they were Christians already because they'd heard about Jesus. Paul had told them about him. So Paul was writing to believers who knew these things about Christ already. But still, we'll see as we go through the letter, Paul still tells them more about Christ or underlines it, the righteousness that only Jesus can give to us. This wonderful day coming of his return of the example of the Lord Jesus and what in practice it meant for him to love us as he does. So the Christians need to get to know Christ better, as do we, which we will, going through this letter. And so let's say we read this letter, we begin to see this more and more. We see the implications, and so we do seek to follow this example of Paul, to live all the more for Christ. What do you think will follow? Well, in the world's eyes, your life is about to get worse. Gloom. You'll miss out on all that's worth having. Unrelenting misery. Not really life in any meaningful sense. Striking is the world tells you live for self. Is it a happy world around us? But just think, look at Paul in this passage. I wonder what our response is to his example I wonder, could it even be envy? Envy, if you like, in the right sense. Not, of course, of prison or the hardships. No one chases after those for their own sake. That would be stupid. And yet, have we seen in Paul, well, such a joy. It's amazing, isn't it? Verse 18, as Paul looks back on his experience, verse 18, he says, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. And then as he turns to look ahead, still in verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. And Paul knew this joy wasn't just for him. It was almost bubbling over. And he says, therefore, I want to give my life, end of verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. So yes, Paul's life was hard in prison, possibly facing execution. In other letters, there are times where he does give us more of a glimpse into his trials. But yet, what do we sense from Paul? Joy. Joy that the world can't have, really. Not through gritted teeth. This is deep and genuine and unshakable joy. So what then are we living for? Well, do we know Christ? So much so that we can see that what we've seen in Paul, what he has shared here, makes actually sense. It makes sense to live for gospel advance. It makes sense to live for Christ, to live for others. And we can see that is the life of joy. The more we live like this, challenging and difficult and laborious it will be, undoubtedly, But nevertheless, the greater our joy will be. And with that, it's only going to get better. Far better. I'll lead us in a prayer.
to live is Christ, to die is gain. Our Father, our prayer is that we would so know your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can increasingly echo those words in our hearts and in all of life. And so we thank you for the gospel. Would we work for its advance? Thank you for opportunities to serve others and to help them to share in this joy. And we thank you for the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ and living for him. Amen.